Well, as we start uh, here this evening, um, you know, the, the good news um, is that tonight we actually get to talk about exactly that. Uh, the good news, a word called the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Last night we covered the bad news, and I'm so grateful, and I want to just say thank you. When we started this journey Monday morning, I said, look, I'm going I'm to challenge you because I think you're able to comprehend the details uh, of what the scripture says. And I think you're mature enough that we can actually talk straight about what the Bible really says regarding every issue we've covered. And last night covering sin, I know I poked you a little bit, uh, was done in love. Uh, was done in a desire to be candid with you about what the reality is of the state of our human nature apart from God. And I want to just tell you, it was really hard sharing the sin story without getting to the good news. Because the reality is, my friends, there is a good news that those who are in Christ, and many of you here, as we say, hey, we're going to share the gospel tonight, you say, oh, well, I've already, I've already trusted Christ, I already know the gospel. Then I pray that tonight, as we walk familiar ground for you, we'll remind you of who you are in Christ. You are fully forgiven, you are fully accepted, you are fully known, and you are fully loved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that you have already trusted. But keep in mind that there are men and women in this room who have yet to trust in Jesus. So as we walk this familiar ground, as we remind you of who you are in Jesus, would you just be mindful in prayer of the men and women who are here whose hearts have yet to open to the gospel, who might even right now feel something a little strange on the inside. I remember the night I trusted Christ, um, I went to a, um, an event for free food that Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh, was putting on, and I was a football player at the time. And so I went to an FCA event, and I remember walking in, and I'm looking around. I didn't really, I knew the athletes, but I didn't know them personally. And this dude comes up, and he hugs me. Hey, bro, we're so glad you're here. And they all knew who I was. My reputation was awful. They knew I needed Jesus, and they had all, I found out after, been praying that I would come. And I walked in the room. And I felt so strange, and I heard this guy talking about the love of God, and something was happening inside of me, and I couldn't quite explain it. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't put words to it. It just felt very odd, and they did the whole, like, with every head bowed and eye closed. After the guy shared the gospel, he's like, if you want to trust in Jesus Christ, raise your hand. And I remember thinking, no way. Me? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. There's Lightning will strike if I try to do something. No way. And yet I just found myself raising my hand. Two of my dear friends sitting on either side of me who had been praying for me, and I raised my hand and I trusted Christ. And I couldn't articulate in that moment what was happening inside. And now, years and years later, as a pastor, I look back and I say, that's the Spirit of God that was awakening my heart to the truth of who Jesus is. And I just want to tell you, if that's you tonight, I want to share the gospel for you so you know, truth be told, what the scripture says about what Jesus has done for you. And then tonight, we're going to give you an opportunity, if you've never trusted Christ, to do the same thing that I did some years ago. But before we get to the good news of Jesus, I just want to remind us of the familiar path we've been on. This whole saga began in Genesis chapter 3. And if you remember, we're going to be in John, so if you have your Bible, turn to John 10, that's where we'll begin in John but the, our journey really started in Genesis chapter 3, which was the first sin. And if you remember, Adam and Eve were given a choice between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And in chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, they, they choose to operate in autonomy, in flesh, apart from God. And they choose to eat and disobey God, assuming they would be like God. But as you remember, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. They did not end up like God. In fact, they ended up realizing they were naked and were ashamed and hid themselves. And God, by his grace, called to them. And he says, where are you? He, he, he hadn't lost them, by the way. It's not that the omniscient, omnipresent God lost track of the only two humans on the planet. He knew exactly where they were. And then he asked them a question, have you eaten of the tree? And as the story goes, they, they sort of cop to what had happened. And God, by his grace, meets them there. And in chapter 3, verse 21, he rejects their covering of self-righteousness that they use to hide their own shame. God sacrifices an animal because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. He sacrifices an animal and God, by his grace, clothes them with righteousness. And all they know is that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a singular male pronoun, he, who will one day come. They didn't know who he was. They had no concept and no category for the span of Old Testament history that was coming and the span of history that you and I are a part of today. All they knew is we're waiting for he. Fast forward now to the New Testament. John comes on the scene and John says of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who doesn't atone for the sins of the world but instead takes away the sins of the world. And all of those who had expectation and hope in the one who would come looked to Jesus in curiosity and wonder and thought, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one who will deliver us from the shackles of our sin. And what Jesus came to do as he had lived his life is something very, very special. It was about, really, his work was about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. And if the root sin um, that Adam and Eve had was autonomy, Jesus was the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus said, I'd come to do nothing of my own initiative, only that which the Father tells me. He says in John 17, I and the Father are one. And Jesus lived in perfect, uh, perfect oneness and relationship with God. And in that lived the life that we could not live. He wasn't just a moral example. He was born to die. He was born to be a sacrifice for you and for me, whether you're ready to acknowledge it or not, the truth be told, Jesus died for the sins of the world. And if you would profess faith in him, you would be forgiven as well. That's the beauty of the gospel. And he begins to drop hints, as I mentioned in John 10, of the work that he would do in his death. And in John 10, verses 10 and 11, he's speaking now in the passage about the good shepherd. And he says this. He says, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundant. Some of you might be thinking, by the way, I'm not sure if I want to trust Christ because it seems like there's just a bunch of rules that are sort of given to keep me from doing what I actually want to do. Uh, and, and the false assumption you're under is that if you just had the freedom to do what you wanted to do, life would be better. And I would suggest to you, life was meant to be lived in relationship with God. You were created in the image of God, designed to live the good life that God has for you in Christ. And then Jesus says in verse 11, as it continues, no, no, the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verses 14 and following of that same chapter, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. Some of you even right now might be feeling that that sense of calling that God is moving in your life right now, that maybe tonight is the night where something happens in your life, where you come to the end of yourself and trust in Jesus, the good shepherd. He goes on in verse 17, he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. As we read through the crucifixion narrative, and as you heard about it in the spoken word, make no mistake, Jesus was not ambushed. Jesus did not get like sucker punched by some people who snuck up on him, and he ended up on the cross. Jesus wasn't killed by the Romans. Jesus wasn't killed by the Jews. Jesus had the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again, and that's exactly what he did for you and for me. Turn to chapter 11. In chapter 11, Jesus has an interaction uh, with a, a man by the name of Lazarus who's been dead for many days, and he shows up, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and in the process of that, if you look at verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 11, Jesus is going to ask a question that I'm going to ask you here in just a little bit, and if you've never answered this question affirmatively. This is the question that you have to wrestle with tonight. Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's no greater question you can uh, answer in your life. It is the most important question you will ever have to deal with. Do you believe this? Is Jesus to you a religious teacher? Is Jesus to you just a prophet? Or could it be that he actually is the resurrection and the life? And in chapter 12, turn to chapter 12 now. And we're going to head into our content for tonight. Chapter 12, verse 23, I want you to know something changes. If you read through the first 12 chapters, one of the things you'll see over and over and over is the crowds are pretty stoked that Jesus is doing what he's doing. So they're like, oh, maybe this is the guy. Let's exalt him to be king. Like, let's literally put him on the throne. And Jesus says over and over, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But in chapter 12, verse 23, something seems to change. And Jesus now sets his sights on Jerusalem, specifically the cross. And he says this, the hour has come, verse 23. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Meaning the playtime's over, kids. It's time to be about the Father's business, which was not just living the perfect life, but dying as a sacrifice for us. Drop down to verse 27. Chapter 12, verse 27. He says, look, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus knew what his purpose was in life. He knew why he was born. He knew what he was heading towards. The cross was in play, but it was not easy for him. You're going to see him later. We're not going to cover it here this evening. Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, tears as of blood going, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. In chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is going to spend time um, having a final meal with his disciples. And in that upper room discourse, in that final Passover meal, 
Um, if you've ever enjoyed communion at the church you attend, it came from this passage where Jesus raises the bread. He goes, this is my body given for you. And then he raises the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he forever changes that Passover meal saying it's not a lamb who's going to be slain. Uh, it's the lamb who's going to be slain. Not simply to celebrate the commemoration of God delivering the people from the slavery of Egypt, but the lamb of God who's going to deliver us from the slavery of the mastery of sin and death. And you can see in chapter 14, if you'll flip there, verses 1 through 4, I think the mood was a little heavy. As the disciples were starting to pick up the hints that Jesus had talked about and the, the, the mood of the room being what it was, knowing Jesus is now hours from the cross, notice what he says in John 14, verses 1 and following. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Jesus just says, hey, look, it's going to get a little weird here in the coming hours. And you're going to see some things that you didn't think you'd ever see, but don't sweat it. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And in my Father's house, I've got plenty of rooms for you, and I'll come back, and I'll be with you. And you just wonder, did they ponder that? Were they thinking about that. In chapters 15 through 17 of John are Jesus' last words to his disciples. If you have a Bible, just look at all of the red letter in 15, in 16, and in 17, which means in most Bibles, red letters assuming the words of Christ. This is Jesus giving one of the longest discourses that you're going to see recorded. And it's in some ways his last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Some of his last words while here on earth. I'd like to cover those if we can a little bit more tomorrow. But I want to look now at chapter 18. And let's watch the crucifixion occur. Jesus is betrayed in chapter 18 by one of his disciples, Judas, whom he knew was the betrayer. He was not surprised by that. Jesus, once he's betrayed and arrested, will endure six trials, three of them religious, three of them Roman, all of which were illegal. None of them provided any credible witnesses. None of them had a shred of evidence. They were really not trials. They were really puppet courts trying as hard as they could to get Jesus crucified. And in verses 12 and following of chapter 18, Jesus is going to stand before a guy named Pontius Pilate. You may have heard the name before. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. What we know about this guy is he uh, lived uh, in the Mediterranean coast city called Caesarea Maritima. He was a very opulent and excessive man. He was exceedingly brutal as a military man. In fact, one of his colleagues wrote a letter to the Caesar that said of Pilate that he was unbending, recklessly hard, a man of notorious reputation, severe brutality, prejudice, savage violence, and murder. I share that with you because when you read this story, this guy's kind of vacillating. Like, what do I do with this Jesus? Do I let him go? Do I not? He had no... Um, fondness for Jesus. He wanted to keep the peace at whatever cost it was. And you'll notice in uh, verses 29 and following, he didn't want to mess with this Jesus. And it says, therefore, in uh, John 18, 29 and following, therefore Pilate went out to them and he's like, look, what, what accusations do you bring against this man? And they said to him, if, uh, if this man were an evildoer, we wouldn't have bothered you with this. 
And Pilate said, look, take him yourself. Judge him according to your law. I don't want to mess with this. And then it got real. The the Jews said to him, uh, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, for a guy whose job it was to make sure everybody just, like, stays chill, uh, this was not good news for Pilate. And so he's very curious, brings Jesus in verse 33, brings Jesus inside and uh, enters into his little praetorium, his little, like, guard's room. And he summons Jesus and he goes, look, are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 36, notice what Jesus says. He goes, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would uh, not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you've said correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born and for this I've come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, the theme of our week, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again and the Jews said to him, said to him, I find, or he said them to the Jews, I, I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate is trying to get out of it. And he, he tries one final move. He's like, look, we got this, this shady, notorious criminal named Barabbas. How about, how about I release him to you? Thinking they'll go, okay, no, not that guy. He's awful. And they go, sure enough, we'll do it. And in the meantime, chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate takes Jesus and scourges him. He beats him. Verse 4, Pilate comes out and says to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you so that you know I find no guilt in him. I'm going to release him. And in verse 6, the crowds lose their minds. The chief priests and the officers saw that, and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And then comes verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. By the way, these are the the same fickle mob that like four days previous, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, cried out, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people, four days later, are now crying out, crucify him. And he says, in verse 15, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So they handed him over to be crucified. Now, crucifixion was a Roman art form. There's nobody that did it like them. They invented it and they perfected it. It was overseen by a person whose title was called a lictor. Their job was to bring you to what they called half-death. They wanted to bring you to the point of death without actually dying. Most people, if they were untrained, would let the, um, the beating go so far that the, the um, accused would die of what's called hypovolemic shock. Fluids would leave their body to the point where they couldn't pump blood to their vital organs. And their job was to take what was called a flagellum, it was like a bat, with leather on the end, braided with stone or glass or rock in it, uh, that they would use to rip the flesh off of your back. When you passed out, not if but when, to wake you up, they would take a uh, big bucket of salt water and pour it on the open wounds on your back to wake you up. It was meant to be the most excruciating experience humanly possible without actually dying. And that's what they did with Jesus. They put the wood on his back. They march him down the Via De La Rosa to be crucified. And if you look at chapter 19, verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross. They took him to the place of the skull, which was outside of the city. And then comes now the death of Christ, verses 26 and following. It says, when Jesus then saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved, which is John, the author of this book, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
And he said to his disciple, behold, your mother. He says, hey, John, take care of mama. This is going to be hard for her. She's treasured all these things in her heart, but she knew this day was coming and she's going to need you. Take care of her. History records, by the way, that both of them die in the city of Ephesus together. And so he does exactly what Jesus said he would do. And then in verse uh, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar uh, full of sour wine uh, was standing there. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop. They brought it up to his mouth. And when Jesus finished the sour wine, verse 30, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. After crying out, it is finished. The question I would love to talk about is what was finished? What in that moment did Jesus accomplish? And so if you recall, we mentioned John 3.16, a very familiar passage. What did Jesus accomplish? What was finished? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Saved from what? Saved from sin. That the world might be saved through him. That the innocent died in the place of the guilty. That we, who deserved death, actually received life. Because he, who was the way, the truth, and the life actually chose death. And in the greatest exchange in the history of the world, the innocent died for the wicked. That the wicked experiences the grace and the love of God. Ephesians puts it this way, that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, while we were yet sinners, died for us. I hope you hear that, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, which means... You don't clean yourself up to bring yourself to God. While you are yet a sinner, you just receive the fact that he died for you. And you accept the grace of God poured out on your behalf. First John tells us that this is the love, or this is love, rather. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and set his son to be the propitiation for our sin. What does that mean? The word propitiation means to satisfy Which means if the wages of sin is death, the bill has to be paid. Someone has to die for you. Either you for your sin or Christ for your sin. And John tells us that Jesus is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Peter put it this way. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. From a a practical standpoint, what what happens? It it seems kind of strange that this Jesus died centuries ago, but, but we still today trust in him, and something happens. What happens when we trust in Jesus Christ? Is it that we just like I don't know, believe certain facts? Is it that we sort of acknowledge certain truths? Or does something actually happen? And I I want to suggest to you, something happens. And I want to talk a little bit about what happens. There's a couple of large words that are critical for understanding what happens. One is we are reconciled. To be reconciled, um, 
Colossians 1 says, and although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death. To, to consile is to purchase. To reconcile is to purchase again. Adam and Eve lived in relationship with God because of sin. They were separated from God and a price had to be paid. And Jesus dying on the cross and you believing in that death for you, he reconciles you. He purchases you again through his blood. We are reconciled. It's incredible that the God of the universe, all the way back from before the creation of the world, says there's going to be a cross one day. And I'm going to incarnate and actually die in the place of those whom I've created that I might buy them back, purchased by my blood. We are reconciled. There's another word. It's called imputation. Imputation. Imputation means to credit to one's account. For those of you who are, are looking forward to going to college one day, you're going to go to college and you're going to learn about imputation because there's poor and then there's college poor, okay? When you're putting corn in top ramen thinking it's a meal, you're in college, okay? And you're going to call your folks uh, if that's possible and say, hey, mom or dad or auntie or grandma or whoever, I'm out of money. Can you hook me up? And they're going to pull out their phone and they're going to pull out the banking app and they're going to take from their account what they have earned and they're going to transfer into your account what you have not earned and you probably don't deserve. And they're going to, they're going to impute to your account money. It's imputation. When Jesus ties, what happens? Your sin is put on him. So when Jesus Christ is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, all of the sins of humanity, all of the sins of humanity that, would, that we would commit, both past and future, all of those are imputed onto him. So he dies sufficiently in your place. The other thing, though, is his righteousness is imputed to us, which means when God sees us, he sees us as righteous. Listen to this. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having put to death, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Another word is the word justify. The word justify means to declare righteous. Romans chapter 5 is going to say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When you trust in Jesus Christ, what happens is, for the first time in your life, you and your creator are on the same page in relationship together. And he has, because of Jesus, declared you righteous, even though you are not righteous. He declares you that because of Jesus. So when he, the Father, sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And then finally... An easy one, one you're more familiar with. We're adopted. One of the things that happens when you trust in Jesus Christ is you are no longer a stranger or an alien. You are no longer an enemy or a child of wrath. You are adopted into the very family of the living God, sons and daughters of the king. I don't know what your home life is like, but if, if the statistics bear true in this room like they do out in the world, a bunch of y'all's homes are jacked. And can I just encourage you with something? By the grace of God, you have a heavenly father who is a gracious father. He is a loving father. 
and he's pursued you to this moment right here that he might adopt you in as a son or a daughter of the king, which begs the question, how do you then receive this salvation? I'm hoping for those of you who've never trusted Christ, you're like, dude, that, that sounds pretty awesome. And I would simply say it is. Paul says, he who trusts in Christ will not be disappointed. How do you receive that? Here's the best news of it. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that any of us should boast, which means this. You don't have to be a cool kid. You don't have to take AP classes. You don't have to try out. You don't have to qualify. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to earn it. You simply receive the gift of salvation that he freely offers. And you go, man, that doesn't sound fair. Shouldn't I have to work for it? Shouldn't I have to clean yourself up? If you did, it's no longer grace. But the Bible says he saved us in Titus 3.5, not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but by his mercy. The beauty of the gift of salvation is he offers it to you freely. And all we who are far from God have to do is simply receive the gift of salvation that he has offered. Something, though, has to happen. You have to have that moment in your life where you cross that line of faith. Some of you have been around the faith. You're here, you're at this camp, you've heard the Bible, and you're thinking, I don't know, I've got like one foot in and one foot out. I know I might believe, I might not, I'm not sure. Something has to happen. You've got to cross that line of faith. You've got to take a personal step. And by the way, your mom can't do it for you. This is you. Before a holy God, this is you giving account for your life. This is you deciding for yourself as a young man and a young woman, who am I and what do I stand for? And friends, something has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, you are still in the flesh. And in the flesh, it is impossible to please God. But the, the salvation that Jesus offers is there for you. If you want it, it's there. And all you have to do is receive him. John tells us that to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, you might be asking this question. How do I know Jesus is the one whom you're saying he is? How do I know? As if what we've walked through so far is not proof enough, look at John chapter 19 starting at verse 39. Before we give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel personally, I want to I reacquaint you to a friend of ours we met some days ago in John chapter 3, but we're in John 19, starting at verse 39. You'll see the name Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the cat who came to Jesus late at night, a religious guy, wanted to have a conversation about the things of God, and Jesus stopped him and said, you must be born again. If you ever wondered if Nicodemus got it, here's Nicodemus who had first come to him by night, John 19, verse 39. And he's now bringing burial spices in verse 39. And in verse 40, he and a buddy of his named Joseph of Arimathea come in verse 40, take the body of Jesus and put it, uh, wrap him in, uh, anoint him in spices and uh, bury him as was their custom. And then if you flip the chapter, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, let me show you what happens that fateful first Easter morning. Chapter 20, verses 1 and following simply says this. On that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, again, John, 
and said to them, uh, they've taken away our Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. And so Peter and the other disciple had a foot race running for the tomb. The two were running together. John outruns Peter, gets there first. Peter elbows John out of the way and goes into the tomb to look. And stooping in, verse 5, he saw the linen wrappings lying there but did not go in. Or I'm sorry, John sees him, didn't go in. Now Peter, verse 6, elbows him, goes into the tomb, saw the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head, lying with the linen wrappings, both rolled up in the place by themselves. So the other disciple who had first showed up, John, now walks in, enters, and believes. For they did not understand the scripture as of yet, that he must rise again from the dead. If there's any question as to whether or not Jesus was sufficient to die for your sins and provide the life that we're talking about, the empty tomb is proof that this Jesus is fully sufficient. So the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 11, and we talked about it earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so I would ask you, do you believe this? Has something happened in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ? And if not, I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. I want to just invite the band. They're going to come out. We're going to sing a song here in just a minute and celebrate the work of God in our lives. But before we sing and before we celebrate what God is doing, I just want to create a moment, all right, with no emotional manipulation. I don't want to, I don't want to have folks come down to the front or anything. I, I simply want to, want to ask this question. If there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ and God is stirring in your soul, and you may not know fully what it means, but you just know I've never trusted Christ, but I, I understand a little differently what this Jesus has done. And I, I think I'd like to stand for Christ. I'd like to invite him into my life. I'd like to experience the joy of this salvation that we're talking about. I'd like to experience this new life in Christ. Just before we sing, I just want to give an opportunity. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ and God is stirring in your life right now, that you need him to be the savior of your life. You're well aware of the sin in your life. And you've tried to fix yourself and you know it ain't working. And you're watching the news or reading the news and you're realizing, dude, this world is freaking crazy. I need hope in my life. Hope that this world is not my home. Hope that I have a heavenly father who is right now preparing a place for you and is going to come and return for us one day. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you would like to experience new life in him, I just want to give you an opportunity to just right where you're at, just stand up. There may be nobody tonight. There may be somebody down here in the balcony, but if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I just want to give you a second to just stand up and just acknowledge, I want to trust Christ. I want to follow Jesus. Amen. Stay standing. There may be more. If there's anybody else, if there's anybody else, Look, it's a hard thing to stand in front of your peers if you've never trusted Christ and you want to invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, stand. Stand with your brothers and sisters who are clapping for you because they know 
They know what Jesus has done. It is a beautiful thing when those created in the image of God recognize the depth of our sin and turn to our creator and are reconciled to him when something happens. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate what God has done. There is nothing that we can do to awaken a heart. That is the work of Christ. And so I celebrate that. Let's pray. We'll sing and we'll all stand together, if you will. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's celebrate. God, you are good And we thank you for the gift of salvation, that something just happened in the lives of our friends here tonight. But God, I know that there may be some here who didn't stand, but maybe you're doing something in their life even now. God, would you just stir in their souls? Nicodemus was told, you must be born again. Something has to happen. And so, Lord, may we cross that line of faith, trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. As we sing and we celebrate. God, we are grateful that those who are in Christ are new creatures, that old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. In Jesus' name, amen.